0: Event movies are all the rage in America, probably because we're looking to some sort of escapism from the scenes that are unfolding from all corners of our lives, our televisions, and our media accounts. But when we watch these movies, they're usually focused on a disaster that had been in the making for some time. And there's usually a one-off character in these types of disaster movies who tries and fails to warn the others of an incoming alien invasion or zombie apocalypse or some kind of cataclysmic weather event. But we live in a time where we all feel like that character. And no one's happy to say they told you so as the worst-case scenario becomes real. But up to that point that character is usually scoffed at as some sort of alarmist. Well, when the people around you who don't share that same belief or don't subscribe to the same media that you do, we tend to call those people alarmists. But we, internally and externally, appear to be alarmed, all of us. And it's easy to be alarmed when our reference point is this current dumpster fire of a century ignited on September 11th, 2001 burning on the fuel of fruitless wars, the Great Recession, the near breakdown of the world's longest functioning republic, a raging pandemic, record inflation that explodes, all while big business profit margins break new records, and it endlessly continues with whatever hair-raising nightmares the overlords want to toss into the sim on an almost daily basis. Just like the character in those disaster movies, Dr. Andrew Schmuckler isn't the guy who is going to say outright he told you so, but I'll say it for him. He told you so. Dr. Schmuckler began his work in the late 1960s, studying the ways that forces, constructive and especially destructive, operate in civilized societies. He wrote a number of books on these subjects, which you can find in the description to this podcast. But in 2004, Dr. Schmuckler began to focus his attention on the current crisis in America, which he sees as perhaps the most profound to face this nation in its history. To use words from his own website, abetterhumanstory.org, which I urge you to go to, it explains, Though it manifests itself in the political sphere, he sees it as going much deeper than politics, involving a deterioration of the moral and spiritual dimensions in which the balance of power between constructive and destructive forces is determined. I can go on forever about Dr. Schmuckler and his accomplishments, but listen for yourself. We go into the inherent issues of what ails our political stability, really, and it's an intense look with so much to cover. In some ways, this was a history lesson— And a lesson about our country's moral dilemma and crisis of conscience that has never truly been covered. So what I did here to make the information a little easier to digest was break it into two episodes. So the first one, which was this one is about the conservative rise that was fueled by the forces of brokenness, something that Dr. Schmuckler began to see early within the Republican Party in the mid-90s when Newt Gingrich and other conservative personalities like Rush Limbaugh introduced the rhetoric and tactics that have shaped Congress and the Republican Party for the last three decades. After all, these were the people who launched an enduring era of brutal partisan warfare— Mitch McConnell and personalities like Tucker Carlson are just here for the final power grab. The second episode is going to deal with the three defects that afflict liberal America, something I'll discuss in the opening of that episode. So for now, please enjoy the Dr. Andy Bard Schmookler with Jay Burke show, part one, the conservative forces of brokenness.
1: I'd get what you're after. Cool,
0: baby. Strange, but not a stranger. I'm Hello, and welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with new knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to break down, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. With us today is Dr. Andrew Bard Schmuckler, Ph.D., A prize-winning author, former Democratic candidate for Congress in Virginia's very red Shenandoah Valley, former talk radio host, summa cum laude, graduate of Harvard University PhD, and awarded with distinction in a program specially created to accommodate his original theory explaining how civilization has developed, and a frequent columnist in newspapers around the U.S. Dr. Schmuckler, oh, I see, I butchered that. I did so well till then. Dr. Schmukler. thank you for uh, joining me today.
1: Well, you're actually doing me a favor by repeating my name a few times.
0: Yeah, yeah. Try know, to it's, get it out
1: it's not like it's going to stick in the listener's mind with the just, you know, one quick once over.
0: Right, it's true. Now, do you like to be called Andy or do you like to be go by Dr. Schmookler?
1: Well, basically, I like to be informal. But in the world as it actually is, yeah, I think throwing in a few doctors just to try to get people to think, well maybe I should take this guy seriously. Yeah. Yeah, but basically I'm Andy. I'm I'm not pretentious. Yeah. Okay. I may be presumptuous, but I'm not pretentious. Yeah. Well, you know, you have quite
0: an extensive resume and in reading some of your work, I was struck by how straightforward and honest your approach is. For instance, you foresaw the rise of Donald Trump saw him. Not getting, he himself.
1: I, right, I, but didn't, a figure. I didn't foresee him, but I saw what was taking over a conservative America, and I started giving out the alarm in 2004.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just found you had this foresight, and I'm not sure you would have, and forgive me, I may not be using the right word here, but I think without looking at the moment or the situation from an honest perspective— where others haven't truly done that, or said this was politics as usual. I think this is the reason we're in the grave political deluge we find ourselves in, where you seem to have seen it for what it it really is, in an honest sense.
1: I I would say that honesty is certainly a a central value of mine. Uh, I'm my father's son, and he had great integrity. And uh, I've written recently about how I was brought up to believe in the power of the truth um, and I became a uh, I haven't made this this uh, connection before but um, uh, in my early 20s I was uh, in, involved in the encounter group movement of, you know about being authentic and saying you know I, I trained encounter group leaders and things like that but i and so the honesty is important but I think um, more important um, For my being able to see that there is darkness coming, um, is that I've spent my whole mature life trying to see things whole. I've been been trying to see how it's all put together. I don't think the world is just this and that. I mean, the the web of interconnections is very uh, dense. Right and uh, the the web of cause and effect uh, specifically is what you know I've been looking at uh Oh, I, I remember something I did in the summer of 1962 between my junior and senior years in high school. And I remember what I wrote then. I was trying then uh, to put the pieces together. And um, then in 1970, a whole lot of pieces came together and formed the foundation of my life's work.
0: Yeah. See, So I think we have a, a similar worldview because I, I look – I remember I was on someone's program and I said, I believe the world is – ninety nine percent gray not black and white there's so much cause and effect in the world every little thing that goes together that happens every choice you make every choice someone else makes it just it creates the conditions of the world as is I know that's a very
1: well let me i I don't know I imagine that if you were to articulate further what you mean by not black and white we would end up uh, I, w- I would understand what you said and I would agree with you. But just listening to the words, uh, I feel moved to say that besides the big idea that changed the course of my life in 1970, I've had one other idea that feels like a, a big thing and apropos of black and white. I know that liberal America has trouble with my saying this, but I feel like I can make it stick. And, and that is uh I'm offering a secular understanding of the battle between good and evil. So that's my, that's the one I, that idea emerged in over the last 17 years, and I'm still developing it. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think that seeing things whole in America today involves seeing something somewhat unprecedented in the history of this country. And it, what, what is unprecedented about it is how consistently it acts to make things broken. Mm. It makes things, uh, I, I to be quite explicit, and I want to preface this by saying that in the 1990s, I had wonderful conversations across the political divide as a radio host in the Shenandoah Valley. So I am, I'm a bridge builder at heart, but something's happened. And, Uh, I honestly cannot think of a single thing in recent years where the effect of the Republican Party on how things unfolded was for the better and not for the worse.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's a sincere judgment. I mean, I'm looking at this stuff all the time. And what seeing things whole means, among other things, seeing that there is a coherent force here that's consistently spreading a pattern of brokenness, whether it's fascistic power arrangement or denial of, um, uh, of climate change and the prevention of action to meet the challenge or whether it's transferring money from the poorer to the richer or wh- whether it, uh, uh, it's increasing hatred between the r- racial and religious groups or whatever. Consistently. This coherent force that's taken over the right, it wasn't always that way. That wasn't the way it was when I was growing up in America. But something has happened which has never happened before, which has resulted in a coherent force that consistently spreads a pattern of brokenness, which is my operational definition of evil. Mm. Because it acts like evil has traditionally been understood in our civilization. So, the ability to see a certain amount in black and white, when they get black and white, is important.
0: Hmm. I'm trying to think of how I would even counter that. I, I don't.
1: I don't know that you can probe it instead of yeah, yeah,
0: no. It. I mean... So no, I I do agree with you. I just it's funny what's happened to the Republican Party, and there there was there's definitely a huge difference since I mean I guess when you were younger with. The way the Republican Party and the Democratic Party used to used to caucus together. And
1: yeah, it was it has never been like this. I mean, I'm a, no. I'm a student of American history. I have taught American history. I, I think I know reasonably well what I'm talking about. We have never had a powerful actor in our political system that so consistently leans to make things worse. Right. I mean, all of, we've been a two-party system pretty much continually since the the Federalists and uh, yeah. Jefferson's party e- e- emerged. Uh, uh, that's just the way our Constitution is built. It's going to develop into a two-party system because we have a winner-take-all uh, election system. Anyway, yeah. but, so we have never had a major party so completely under the sway of what I'm calling a force of brokenness. And the reason I could see the darkness coming was that I've been studying how brokenness moves through cultural systems, well, since 1970. And then I had another book uh, about healing the wounds that drive us to war that came out in 1988 and a book in 2015 about what we're up against and uh, i could see what we're up against because if you look at the network of cause and effect you can see how something might converge into a being a force like that this is extraordinary because usually the actors in the situation like a, like individuals have mixtures of good and you know constructive and destructive elements you know mm-hmm. like everybody in your life is not has got whole and broken part, parts both and and, and ourselves and so also with the political parties until now.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, unless, unless you're willing to give the Republicans credit for a few people like Adam Kinzinger and Lynn Cheney. Uh, and I think, well, that's, that's just stuff off, chips off to the side.
0: I was going to say, but that's uh, a lot of the guys we are giving some kind of credit to. Actually, it's funny. I see George Bush 43 getting a lot of credit these days and... You can make the case that a lot of this starts probably when, when he's president, right? I mean, as far as the power play in the the Republican Party, I mean, it might have started before that when Newt Gingrich. You could say Reagan started yes. that, but
1: I, I get to tell this history, uh, you know, fairly often. and I've been working on it because mm-hmm. you know part of the assignment is you know how do you understand uh, how the Republican Party came to this. You can find the elements of this in the Republican Party prior to the rise of Limber, Lim, Limbaugh and, and Gingrich. I, I do recall that Ronald Reagan launched his 1980 presidential campaign in, in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which was a dog whistle to white supremacy because that's where the uh, civil rights workers mm-hmm. were murdered. So I, I remember, uh, you know, that there were those elements there but i draw the line in the early 90s i see something coming on that's that's how the history looks to me though you can also go back go back to the 70 or 71 there's a famous memo by supreme court justice powell uh which has got you know which is credited by some people as launching some of this plutocratic takeover dimension mm-hmm. i'm a little bit ignorant about that uh, component of it. Mm. But you can go back there. But for me, it starts. And then in 97, Fox News comes on. Mm. Uh, so the propagandists, I mean, basically, uh, Newt Gingrich is a propagandist. I, I, I remember from back then, uh, well, or maybe from uh, during W's time, people were saying that Gingrich had actually studied Hitler's propagandist method. What's his name? Goebbels?
0: Yeah, Joseph Goebbels.
1: Uh, I always get him and Goering fit up, mixed up, but anyway, I mean you got to keep your Nazis straight, right? <laughs> we put on the producers, no. Um, so then, after Fox News, there comes W's presidency with with Karl Rove playing a pivotal role as a, as a, again a propagandist, and onward up through into Trump and and uh, the era we're, we're in now. So I think there's a there's a history there you can see unfolding. And I regard the first Bush presidency as normal American politics. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of normal American politics, because even though Bill Clinton was a well, I mean, he was a special case in a lot of ways, being so bright and so so sleazy, but So uh, basically good hearted. He's a very impressive guy and Mm -hmm. he did a reasonable job anyway. But uh, what was abnormal about that time was for the first time, we had a political party that was refusing to accept that he was president. Yeah. I mean, they didn't deny that he was born in the United States like they did with Obama. They didn't deny that he'd won fair and square like they're doing with Biden right now. Right. Right. But it was abnormal in that respect already because they they sent uh, they spent their their special counsel uh, what was his name Ken Ken Starr. Ken
0: Starr. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. Whitewater. Oh, we got some big fiscal cor- financial corruption. Nothing there. But keep looking. There's got to be some way of destroying this guy. He's a womanizer. Ah, here's a blue dress. Yeah. You know. But, but it has been since uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency since that the Republican Party has recognized the legitimacy of a a Democratic president and accepted that the American people had hired that Democrat to play an important role in our constitutionally organized government. That's the beginning of the darkness.
0: So why does that come about, though? What happens happens during that time period that they say it's better off that we start looking to propaganda. See, I think during that time, there was a lot of dismantling of the government. So I, I find it very, very almost evil the way they play politics, right? So you underfund the government.
1: Only almost evil, huh? Uh, yeah, wow. What would it take to be evil for you? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, that's that gray area speaking a little bit. but uh, okay. Nothing black and white. <laughs> no, no. Right? Okay. Uh, no, but I, I find it, I've always found it very evil that, they're saying, listen, we're going to defund the government. We're not going to put into these programs. We're going to spend, you know, what was it, Starve the Beast? They, they tried that, overspend yeah, right. and, and then not tax. And then sit there and say, look, government doesn't work. See, they never do anything right. And
1: I, I, I was born in 1946. Mm-hmm. So the first Republican par- uh, president I ever knew was Dwight Eisenhower. Exactly. My parents didn't vote for him. I've read his biography. This is an admirable man. Yes. Uh, I'm not saying he didn't make any mistakes, and I'm not saying I don't disagree with him about some things. He was a conservative and decent and competent and patriotic American. That's a Republican Party that eventually gets taken over by sociopaths. Eisenhower, or whatever however excessively hardline he might have been, with John Foster Dulles as his uh, secretary of uh, state and the doctrine of massive retaliation, I don't know. I'm not in the position to second guess them from here quite well, a little bit. <laughs> uh, but 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 he they were not sociopaths. Mm-hmm. But Gingrich, Limbaugh, Murdoch, Karl Rove, Trump, all sociopaths. Yeah. So. How does how does prop the propaganda take over? I did two pieces. One was called How Did America Come to This? These are published in the newspapers in my red congressional district. How did America Come to This? And that was all about how it was it wasn't the way brokenness took over it, 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 over this slavery issue that brought us the terrible civil war. And it wasn't like the brokenness that took over in Germany uh, that led to the Nazi regime being in power. And I, I talk about why it's not like that, because you know, the circum- what that was about isn't what has happened in America in the last 30 years. The second thing was, well, how did the Republican Party come to this? And I've got a little idea that I could share, but I'm also happy to go in a different direction if you'd like.
0: You lead me.
1: Okay. Well, I think it's a kind of a nifty idea. Uh, you know, I was, I'm trained as a social scientist, uh, uh, mostly by my dad, actually, but that's another story. But I also got, you know, access uh, in, in college and graduate school to good, good teaching. Yeah. So the re- we have this two party system and for generations there was a division between the two major parties of two powerful forces of brokenness that have deformed America from being what it ideally should be one of them is the force of racism white supremacy domination etc like that anybody who studies american history has to recognize that this is one of the worst aspects of our history and mostly i'm having thinking about african americans and slavery and jim crow and all that but you could also talk about how we stole uh the continent from uh, the native americans who, who, with whom we made treaties that we routinely broke the but mostly it's the race issue because that's fundamental to a whole region of our country that was dominant for generations until up to the civil war and that in which the distribution of power and wealth was founded on a system of slavery. Mm -hmm. So big interests in it being right for white people to exploit black people. Okay. So that was in uh, housed in the democratic party. Yes. From before the civil war, you know, I think Calhoun was a Democrat, um, nullification and all that. Anyway, it was all about slavery for a long, long time. And then it was all about resegregating for a long, long time. Yes. And the Democrats were always the ones who housed that part of the American power system, even FDR, who is a real big hero of mine, though I, I know his flaws and everything, but, oh gosh. Wouldn't it be good to have somebody like that uh, yes. talking to the country with uh, with his clarity and his eloquence? I mean, I'm a big fan of Churchill, too, but FDR was president of the United States through two of the major crises of our whole history. Mm-hmm. I think this is the fourth major crisis, by the way. But meanwhile, the other big uh, force of brokenness that deforms America has to do with the ability of money to essentially... Purchase political power, undermine the democracy, make sure that the power of the state, including in the framing of laws and the interpretation of the Constitution, favors the interests of the very rich. I mean, that's a problem. You know, it's not an easy problem to get rid of. But but anyway, capitalism produces major uh, inequalities of wealth, uh, unless something's done to prevent
0: that. Yes.
1: And if wealth can buy political power, well, then injustice is inevitably the result. Because, you know, if you read Plato's Republic, uh, the definition of justice offered by the guy who says this is what the world is like when there is no justice is the interests of the stronger party. Right. So basically, it's another force of injustice is bad. Well, I don't know. White racism is so ugly, but uh, this, is, uh, this is of a different uh, quality, but it's also been very destructive. And from the end of the Civil War up until the New Deal, the power of corporate America uh, concentrated, driven by greed, was housed in the Republican Party. So both parties had their, you know, their representatives of evil. Right. Uh, and both parties had their virtues. And because the two big forces of greed and racism were divided in the battle between the parties, they canceled each other out, you know, more or less. But then, when uh, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson—I uh, I don't know how much history to assume that our, our listeners have—but uh, for an old guy like me, you know, I, who remembers the day that JFK was assassinated, yeah. Lyndon Johnson becomes president, and. Uh, the next year, uh, thanks to Lyndon Johnson, as well as Martin Luther King and people like that, important civil rights legislation gets passed. It will no longer be tolerated in America for black people to be treated so terribly as they have been uh, forever. And when Johnson signed this, he said, "We're going to lose
0: yeah, the South, right? The
1: South for a generation, and we're two and counting. Two meaning the the solid Democratic South that used to, you know, it wouldn't. They weren't blue <laughs> maps then, but yeah. they were blue reliably every every time." Has become the solid Republican South, and you know you can just take a look at uh, Strom Thurmond, who who ran as a Dixiecrat in 1948, a Democratic senator from South Carolina, who moves to the Republican Party and is quite happy there, mm-hmm. because the Republican Party is now the party of white supremacy as well as the party of corporate greed, and I say that. That alliance made it too powerful for the good part of the Republican Party to survive and to continue to run the show, you know, give us people like Eisenhower or even a decent human being like Ronald Reagan. It, it was overpowered. And liberal America's defects also play a role there. And that's, you know, another direction that we could go, because I say that the one-two punch that has has damaged american political system is that the the right, conservative america went over to darkness at the same time as liberal america bought into things that made them weak mm. yes and
0: that's a, a, yeah no that's a that's a good take on it and a very very no but that's that's a take i think you're you're correct in assuming that. and i never really thought of it in that term as well, if far you'd as, like. I, I like the idea that, that you posed there as far as that there was two forces of brokenness. And at one time, they kind of canceled each other out because they were in two different parties. And then they kind of coalesced when Lyndon Johnson...
1: Yeah, alliances make for great power.
0: Yeah. but Two she,
1: strong things brought together well, can be very powerful.
0: Well, that's the huge issue with having a two-party system because now one goes off the rails and you see what's happening but the great the great thing that, the amazing thing i should say that that they've done is you know i hear this all the time you see elon musk now talking about how the left has pulled him is trying to pull everybody to this left what a and,
1: disappointment that guy is yeah I mean, if you're so rich why ain't you smart uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> i think <laughs> he just knows about one thing and then he should probably keep his mouth shut
1: yeah it's a little bit hard to Quite imagine how you can be so brilliant in some ways and such a jerk.
0: Because I, I don't think he lives in a reality that everybody else does. He, you know, he sees it. a uh, I guess he sees it as everybody's coming after his money or trying to. Well, I, I,
1: I've, I heard, I've I've heard that his relationship with his father, you know, his father, he sees as a kind of monster. Right. And I don't know how much of a mon- i mean, I read something about it, but you know, if you grow up with a father that you think is some kind of a monster. There's not gonna there's gonna be something put together inside you. It's gonna be hard to get things well put together inside
0: yeah. you.
1: Around issues of power, authority, and I mean I don't I, I'm not psychoanalyzing him. But yeah. as a, I have some training as a clinical psychologist and my nose tells me if you got a father like that and you're gonna ask this guy about politics, uh you know, better to talk to somebody who grew up in a healthy family.
0: Yeah. Well I I'll tell you when you talk about propaganda and propaganda that worked, somehow, a lot of this country feels like we've been pulled in a direction that's to the left. And, and I always kind of laugh about this because I always think, well, one, if you don't like the direction of the country in the last, let's say, 40 years, it's neoliberalism pretty much won <laughs> everything, right? I mean, we reduced the tax rates on, on the wealthiest. We slashed a lot of these programs. But
1: the the idea of being pulled to the left is such a complete red herring. Yes. Let's just take a look at uh, Obamacare. You know, I follow that very closely. And uh, I would say the Republicans conduct on that throughout has been completely indefensible. Correct. You know, the United States was paying twice as much per capita as other democracies and was getting inferior results for the population to the point that. Not only were we wasting $2 trillion a year, mm-hmm. but we were having 45,000 excess deaths a year. Mm-hmm. So there's a problem.
0: Yeah.
1: Definitely need a solution. Obama put forward something which was you know, not spectacular, but it was definitely reasonable. It took us in the direction so that we were closer to being what every other decent society already is and has been yeah. for a long time in terms of providing health care there is nothing unreasonable about it and we had a national debate which got resolved because that was what he ran on he was elected to do it it went through the process it became law we're done yes that's how the system's supposed to work but not the republicans we never have i don't know never in any episode where country went through all the constitutional processes mm-hmm. it needed to to come up with how are we going to deal with this mm-hmm. and then the party that then it feels like maybe they lost the debate though it wasn't like they ever really entered into any debate but the, but they just didn't want the other party to look good I and mean, it's as simple as that yeah They didn't want the American people to think, hey, the government can do some things for us, because they were the party of the plutocracy that wants the government out of the way of of the most powerful elements in the society already. And they don't want people coming to the government and electing representatives to be in the government who are going to make the decisions to do what the people want done.
0: Right. This idea of being pulled to the left. And I always look, I look at a guy like Bernie Sanders, who's... They lob everything at him, socialist, you know. And when I look at him, he's, he would be considered moderate in a lot of countries. You know, the stuff he's running on is, is stuff that liberal democracies in Europe already have.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, if you look at the, you know, like, what is, the, what, the, what is the purpose of organizing your society? Well, you want to organize it in a way where the well-being of people... And, and anything else you might care about, is well provide, well, t- well taken care of by the, uh, you know, the way the society is organized. You, you ask the people in Norway, how do you like the way your society is organized? And, oh, they're a lot happier than the American people about how their society is organized. So, you know, maybe there's some things to learn about how to get the, our society organized in a way which is, you know, leads to people being more fulfilled. And that's where the rubber hits the road. I mean, human fulfillment, I would argue, and that's another conversation, human fulfillment has to be grounded. The good has to be grounded in the fulfillment of sentient beings.
0: Yes.
1: Other than that, what the hell difference does anything make? I mean, if it was a lifeless universe, if nobody had any experience, does it matter? With, will there be a, dis- a disturbance in the force if, if uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's uh, planet gets uh, blown up? You know yeah. No, no, it doesn't matter. It matters because of uh if things matter to us. If if we can't play place a premium on organizing our society to make things best for people and other living things that matter, what else is the point of it?
0: I agree with you a thousand percent. But that's where we might have gotten a little out of whack where we are currently, right? So what made us probably the great as a species is we had uh, Cooperation And then we had Also um, um, What's it called um, Conflict And conflict Yeah but I'm thinking more in terms of um, Yeah I guess conflict Would, would work
1: well, here, here, if, if I can jump in Yes you've, you've opened the door for something I'm very Eager to put on the table uh, is that metaphor work okay? Yes. I mean, the table's on the other side of the door, right? Okay. <laughs> so I claim to have proved that a creature taking the step onto the path of civilization inevitably unleashes a social evolutionary force that is not determined by the nature of the creature. hmm That it is a function of the unprecedented situation that's created by the unprecedented step of a creature inventing its own way of life, which is the essence of civilization. Right. It's an unprecedented step after three and a half billion years of life developing on this planet, which I think is the framework within which everything has to be understood that this that's that's the preface. We're living in the in the body of the work of the rise of civilization And Mm -hmm. I say what I have proved, and this is the idea that came to me in 1970. What I have proved includes these two statements. The ugliness we see in human history is not human nature writ large. I claim to approve that that ugliness should not be interpreted as showing us who we are, that we are better creatures than we think. And the other related statement I like to use to... Lure people into this idea because I think that if we understood that we're better creatures than we think, that would have a powerful effect in the world mm-hmm. all by itself. Yes. There's, and it isn't all by itself, but even if that was all, that whole mm-hmm. idea of original sin and the depravity of man that have played such a big role in our history, yeah, no wonder, because the step onto the path of civilization creates anarchy which creates a war of all against all, which creates a selective process for those cultural options that are able to prevail in a war of all against all. Right. And they're not random. And you see the spirit of the warlord or the spirit of the gangster dictating how the human world is going to evolve. And that is unavoidable, which leads to that second statement, which is any creature on any planet on anywhere in the cosmos that takes that step onto the path of civilization, the step which is defined as extricating itself from the niche in which it evolved biologically by inventing its own way of life. Any creature that takes that step will un- will inevitably unleash a social evolutionary force that will make its history as ugly, as destructive, as tormented as what we see in human history and what is now manifested mm. in the... In, in the darkness that we're c- confronting right now in America,
0: what do you think it is? You might have explained it there a little bit, but what is so appealing about a, a dictator?
1: If 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 humankind gradually descended into a war of all against all, inevitably, which I'm saying was inevitable, right? Uh, because of the because of of the unregulated nature of the system within which different societies have to interact a war of all against all what I'm going to try to show is people get broken in history, the history that was inevitable, the ugliness we see in history, inevitably would have traumatized people we live in societies that have been selected, for. I mean we have for 10,000 years been living in those societies that have been able to prevail in the war of all against all so of all the cultural options we might've had, these non-random ones. And they make demands on us that are dictated by the requirements of power. And they are often hostile to human nature and human needs. You can start with the fact that in the, in the original empires that emerged when civilization emerged independently in six places in the world, all had most people living lives basically as slaves. But one way or another, people would be forced to live in societies that were designed by a selective process for the ways of power and were antagonistic to the needs, of many of the needs of the human being. And so people are set at war against with each other, with in, in, what the, the demands of the society and the demands from within the organism are in conflict because the needs of the organism haven't dictated enough of the nature of the society. You've got a tyrannical few uh, with uh, you know uh, over seeing a mass of, of slaves. cities are put to the to the sword. You see on the bas reliefs uh, what they celebrated, the marching of their of their, of the vanquished uh, through the streets with ropes around their necks. you know it was an ugly world, yeah, and people had to live in it, and it hasn't completely changed. I mean, We've made some real progress in creating some decent societies, democracies and stuff like that. But it's taken us a long time to get as far as, you know, liberal democracies have taken things. It's taken us a long time. And people are the heirs of so much trauma. And they are so damaged by by both, you know, like what the Ukrainians are going through right Mm -hmm. now. Those children are not going to be the same as they would have been if Putin had never invaded. Yes. Some of them may put it together fine, but there's a lot that's going to have to be worked on uh, or there's going to be stuff that's broken. I mean, trauma is by definition an experience which is beyond the ability of the creature to integrate into themselves. Yes. That's a form of brokenness. And so you ask, why do people respond to dictators? Well, you and I wouldn't. But people can go through different experiences, uh, inheriting their own little bits of the world, you know, like an authoritarian family where, you know, I wasn't brought up in an authoritarian family. I was always allowed to say, well, why? Mm-hmm. You know, but I know that in this uh, Shenandoah Valley, the, you know, below the Mason-Dixon line, the rules in the family were not the same as the rules I was brought up with.
0: So it's almost like a cultural... It's like traditions passing down to each other in some way.
1: Well, you know, um, I ran for Congress in this district. Mm-hmm. I remember going to VMI, which is in my district, the Virginia Military Institute. I, there's a certain appeal uh, to the place. You know, people are you know, so well-mannered and, uh, um, yes, sir. You know? yes. <laughs> it wasn't like visiting Virginia Tech or, uh, um, or the University of Virginia um, neither of which is, was exactly in my district. But anyway, there's a relationship with authority that's embedded in the top-down kind of culture. It's, it's got its virtues. And that's what I loved when I did radio conversations with the conservatives around here, was I could see that a lot of them were, were really good people who you know, took the word of God or their concept of good character or their reverence for the Constitution, and subordinated themselves to the, this trusted authority. And as a result, they had certain virtues, like the students at uh, VMI, of a top-down nature. But it creates a vulnerability. You know, If, if the problem with liberals is it's like herding cats, and they create a certain amount of chaos because they don't have enough top down when they make a mistake. The problem with the uh, people on the other side is they can all go off the, 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 the rails uh, together in one coherent way. If, they, if the, the, they have these trusted authorities and, you know, uh, it's one thing if their trusted authority is Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh, boy. Let's have that. Let's have a world full of people who take those words and, in a top-down way, make themselves, make themselves, uh, fake it till they make it. Yeah, I mean that is how we should deal with each other. Really, uh, Jesus gave a really good recipe for uh, the human world as it should be. Mm. But they are vulnerable to being conned by a bad yes. moral authority. In the case of Germany they followed hitler
0: yeah well they were kind of given those people so it's funny when we we were talking about money and and power and you look at the inequality at that point that the the treaty of versailles really put on those people yeah. and i could see why they were susceptible to somebody like that and and it's in small increments it's not like he took i mean in, in the blink oh, of an eye i
1: time. agree it was it was in the air right uh, By by 1918, in the immediate aftermath of the war, there was already this stab in the back.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah. uh, you know, and they assassinated the Jewish uh, foreign minister. What was his name? Uh, Oh, uh, 1922. Anyway, mm -hmm. Uh, a good man, but to these people, but it it wasn't. I mean, when I say I said it was, America didn't didn't get there the way the, the Germans did because. The Germans went through all those traumas, one after the other, starting with uh, whatever two or three million men killed in what was a losing effort, um, after which was imposed an unjust peace uh, by the victors. And then the inflation that meant you needed a wheelbarrow to be able to buy a loaf of bread and whole classes of people were wiped out. I mean, you can imagine what Americans, what state Americans would be in if we went through anything like
0: that. They were very prideful people, too, at the time. And so culture does play a lot into that, you
1: know. Oh, yeah. I mean, Hitler's tapped into forces of brokenness that were already established Mm. in German culture. The anti-Semitism already has a a history of uh, going back centuries all the way to Martin Luther and presumably into the Middle Ages. Yeah. And and the history of German militarism goes back to the Prussians and all that. So they were able to, to, just like the Republican Party could bring together the forces of greed and avoid racism, the the Nazis were able to bring together the the forces of anti-Semitism and militarism.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But they got broken because of trauma. I think that the America that the the good conservatives I got to really be fond of back in the '90s, I think they got broken by propaganda. That's how it looks to me. Yeah. That that, that people, I've heard from people who's like like a woman uh, uh, whose mother, have a woman say '40s, '50s, let's just say '50s, and her her mother uh, in in her '60s, whatever is a certain kind of person. And she moves to a place where all she gets is Fox news and she changes. I mean, there's a lot of these stories around the country that people get led into. I mean, you know, that, that American Indian thing, the grandfather and the son, you know, which wolf is going to win the wolf of the good wolf or the evil wolf that's battling inside every person. Mm -hmm. And the old man says, the one you feed
0: Yes, I know that. That's actually
1: well. Crazy. The propagandists of the right have been feeding the bad wolf, uh, you know, and so this woman who's watching Fox News day after day gets more and more scared, more and more angry, more and more paranoid, and yeah. and the daughter doesn't know how to deal with her anymore. She's she's in this altered state. And, you know, eventually you can be in such an altered state. You can believe all kinds of things and follow somebody who just tried to overthrow the American constitutional order.
0: Yeah, I thought that was the end of that movement, by the way. I couldn't believe that that didn't do it for Trump and the, all those followers. I, I thought that was – and I think a lot of those conservatives like McConnell and them were probably like, thank they were God this is, this is over.
1: They didn't want Trump in the first place.
0: No, they didn't. They, They're just – They know, though, if they don't follow him, that party is just about done. It it is kind of, I think, the last dying breath of a certain breed, right?
1: I think we're in danger of losing our democracy to the force of fascism that has taken over the Republican
0: Party. Yes, because they're about to lose. I don't know we're
1: going to survive this.
0: I I worry about that, too, because I think that's, like I said, the last dying breed of a certain type of, I I don't know if I want to say man or, or... person, and this plays back into this, you know, sometimes I, I, I got really interested in, in nostalgia in general, but mm. Americans and nostalgia is 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 amazing, and when you look at the history of nostalgia, it hasn't really been studied in depth until more recently. They they did study it, but but it's much more studied now than it ever was. So, so
1: what is it about nostalgia that's, uh, that engages you? I mean, we can talk about this in, in terms of mis- nostalgia, like like maybe white people being nostalgic for when black people stayed in their place.
0: And
1: and me being nostalgic for living... I mean, it's really painful for me to live in an America that I don't feel about the way I felt about the America I grew up in.
0: Yeah. Well, so you want to know something interesting is marketers figured out nostalgia before the scientists of this age, uh, how it works. So they figured out if they can market to people and make them feel that feeling, they were more apt to subscribe to whatever they were pushing or buy whatever products they were buying.
1: The nostalgia is the good avenue into the, uh, to the motivational core.
0: Correct. And there is this feeling about, especially about the new 1950s America and, and this time where, you know, we were supposed to be on top of the world. And I guess we were in some aspect, but part of that is because Europe was destroyed and, We were rebuilding it, you know, when we look at manufacturing plants and then all these things that – all these things that happened then that were good were the result of a lot of government intervention. You know, you had the GI Bill that helped a lot go to college, get homes. Right. Um, But they they ignore – a certain element, and every generation does this, and, and a lot of generations aren't nostalgic. Liz, I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, but I, I would say my prime teen years were in the, in the 90s. And there's this, there this feeling for the 90s, I see, in pop culture that, oh, this is the last great decade. And when look you at- look at 9-11, yes, because we weren't at war, we were relatively at peace during the 90s, but there was a lot of social upheaval during the 90s and there was a lot of issues but people kind of forget that aspect of it
1: i, I recommend a particular kind of nostalgia for this era mm-hmm. um, and that's that's a nostalgia for when the structures of our constitutional order were in better shape
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the the spirit that inhabited our political process was more benign. In some respects I advocate for envisioning the ideal America and trying to get there. Yeah. But I think that the, the what you said about nostalgia being a good motivational force means that we should also besides being pulled forward by our ideal of what we want the better America to look like we also have to build it on a foundation of the norms and values and such that we are heir to. We can't build things from scratch. So we have, we have uh, uh, a founders that said things like um, we are a government of laws, not of men, and that all men are created equal and that we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights Mm -hmm. and The kinds of things that Lincoln liked to hearken back to, to say, to inspire people to realize the values of this country, rather than to give in to the force of brokenness, which in Lincoln's case was trying to perpetuate the regime of slavery, and in our case is trying to impose on us a rather comprehensive uh, menu of brokenness, including a fascist regime.
0: You know, going back to your trusted authority... It's very interesting when you're talking about virtues and and that word those words trusted authority and the constitution because that seems to be this this point that a lot of conflict resides around and when people think of the founders they have this idea of them that's very different than what they were if you study history for instance I think it's funny when we take this originalist approach to the constitution especially look at what the the leak of uh, justice alito's uh, yeah supreme right so you know he he's looking he's he's saying that it, he's looking at it from a strictly originalist perspective saying abortion i, I don't
1: believe that I, I don't believe there. it i i I don't think well, he's being faithful to the Constitution I, I don't think least. he is either. And I don't even think he's really placing a very high value on that.
0: No, I don't either. He's a,
1: he's a culture warrior. He wants to impose his religious views Correct. on society as a whole. And he's also wanting to foment a conflict, which is what they do, what the spirit of the right is about. Right. His, his, his particular way of overturning Roe is a declaration of war.
0: Well, so I always, I always said this. And I, n- I never thought Roe would fall. Maybe I was naive. I just – and I think a lot of these Republicans liked running on the idea of getting rid of Roe. But now that they –
1: the dog, the dog caught the bus. Correct.
0: <laughs> and and <laughs> uh, I, I always said years ago, I was like, you try to take away guns or you try to get rid of Roe v. Wade, you'll probably see civil war in this country. They will, you know, it's funny because those things are in the limelight right now between the the gun debate and and abortion.
1: I I say the spirit of brokenness has taken over the Republican Party. And I I say a coherent force that consistently spreads a pattern of brokenness is a good definition of evil. Yes. But let's look at those two issues together just to see the spirit of the thing at work. Abortion and guns. Now, if you were an evil... And I, by the way, I'm not thinking this is in purely secular terms, you know, I I, I'm studying how a force works. You could not come up with a better strategy if you want to increase the brokenness of America than what the Republicans do on both those issues. They are guaranteeing that there will be a state of war perpetuated on both issues. Yes. No, no attempt to come to a settlement which allows us to. okay we nobody got everything they wanted or whatever, or we came to what was the best of the available solutions or whatever. And we go on from there. That's what the country really needs, obviously. But their position on guns. I mean, it's, com- it's completely baloney. You know, it's, don't politicize it. I mean, it can't even be credible. I mean, of course, it's political. The only reason America has all the world's or, you know, 90 percent of the world's mass killings is because we are unique in our political process, grinding out gun laws that make us prey to every young guy Mm -hmm. who got bullied in high school, who wants to go out and buy an assault rifle.
0: The idea that somehow you're infringing on that Second Amendment by saying you can't. First of all, Congress isn't allowed to study it study gun death right so when we had traffic fatalities that were rising they studied that right i think back in the 50s and then they it, came up with these laws bank mans, you know things like that they didn't take away cars you know it, it, it's just this ridiculous and notion and this is
1: this is over a right that the nixon appointed chief justice of the united states uh, burger i can't remember his first name mm-hmm. hamburger No, that's that's the district attorney in Perry Mason, old Perry Mason. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he he said that the interpretation of the Second Amendment as guaranteeing what the Supreme Court back in Heller has now already decided was absurd. So they're not guided by the you know, you, you just see there's something operating here that's just perverse that wants us to fight about these things forever. I just read recently that I think it's the state of Texas is going after, it won't do business with any company that avoids uh, investing in fossil fuels or something, like making, doing something about climate change, a a, a criminalizing it almost, like to punish it. I, I mean, it's just, it's a kind of madness. But it looks, if you look at each little thing along the way, Every single thing sort of makes things worse.
0: Yeah, With abortion, it gets very interesting. So I'm putting together one of my... Every once in a while, I'll do one solo, but I really have to prep for them and script them out and and have everything everything bullet-pointed so that I'm not just sitting there talking out of left field. But abortion, when I really got into the nuts and bolts of it, and you start looking at the history of it, and what Alito is saying... Well, abortion didn't really mean anything back when the founders were writing the Constitution. So why would it even be mentioned? A woman actually had control of her own body then. So the only time that it was illegal, I guess, in a sense, you can consider it that way, would be after quickening, which is when the fetus starts to move or kick or, or whatnot. But nobody would know that. I mean, there weren't really skilled physicians at the time. And it was frowned upon, I know, by the Catholic Church a little bit, but more in terms of most, they felt that most people having an abortion were committing adultery. They should
1: have the punishment.
0: Right. So, yeah. So a lot of that stuff didn't even matter at that time. And then, you know, eventually it, it happened. The Physicians Crusade started in 1857, and that really kind of took abortion to the next level. By 1900, we had all these laws.
1: I think that the the way to see the abortion issue in, in American terms is to look at the establishment clause in the First Amendment. It basically says the power of the state is not going to be used to prefer one religious view over another. even over a non-religious view. That's the establishment clause. And it's not at all hard to tell that basically the disagreement over abortion, which is not going to go away because we've been debating it for a half century. Right. And and Alito represents like 10% of the American people. And the less extreme version of overturning Roe versus Wade represents like 30% of American people. and. It's essentially a, re- a religious point of view. They think there's a question about at what point from the fertilization of an egg until the birth of a baby, when do we start regarding this as a, uh, as a human being entitled to the rights that uh, our constitution and our, re- our laws afford a human being? Which is a fundamentally, it's one of those complex issues that reasonable people can look at Differently, But in any event, it's a, it's a disagreement about a religious issue. So we have a choice between either we can let everybody live their lives in accordance with their religious view mm-hmm. of this, which will mean there will be a lot of Americans who make choices that some other religious people abhor. Right. But they are allowed at least to live their lives according to their religion. This is just one of those things they have to tolerate about the world being uh, a fallen place. Right. Or one group will tell will will harness the power of the state to impose their religious views on everybody else so that they're happy that no abortions are taking place. But the majority of people are having to submit to the religious views of, that they don't agree with. Mm-hmm. I don't have a whole lot of trouble uh, figuring out what the Constitution says about that because of the Establishment Clause.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I, I don't look for the right of privacy, you know, like in search and seizure, you know, like the, the original decision does. I mean, that's a reasonable attempt, but I think more fundamentally, We Americans agree to let other people make bad religious choices.
0: Yes. Yeah, well, a lot of people point to that. uh, That was in, what, the Ninth Amendment you're talking about, where they uh, used – that's how they – It's the First Amendment.
1: No, no, I'm talking
0: about what what they used Roe. Roe's reasoning was, was, I think, the Ninth and the Fourteenth.
1: Well, there's also the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable – so, oh, yeah. From which yeah, I think the original decision, the, the justice talked about a, a penumbra of a shadow or something uh, of the right of privacy, even though the Constitution doesn't say anything about privacy. Right. It's implied by the right not to have one's persons or, or you know, uh, invaded. Um, and it was used in the Griswold decision, I believe. To give uh, yeah, married yeah. couples the right to uh, buy contraception yep. in Connecticut, which was dominated by the Catholic Church, in that with respect to that issue.
0: Yeah, well, that's the that's the dangerous slope about repealing this. Is now you could can repeal all of these things because well, these are setting re- this- precedent.
1: This Republican Supreme Court—I'm very concerned. I love the Supreme Court as, I do too. A, as a historical institution. My favorite course in college was Gov 124, taught by the guy who wrote the book that we read. He was just great, Robert McCloskey, and I've loved the Constitution ever since. But oh, I know that name. I, 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 the the court that we're going to see unfold in the course of the next month—I'm afraid it's going to be like nothing we've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, I I think it is manifestly an adjunct of a political party it's an instrument in the hand of the republicans it is it is concerned with what advances the republican cause in this case not what does the constitution or the law say that's my fear and i've acted on that fear a little
0: bit yeah well see, i think roe did create a lot of people mis, misinterpret Roe as oh it, it made abortion legal it, it really didn't do that it was kind of uh, a, a bargain it kind of gave everybody something right so said in the first trimester the state can't interfere at all and then at a certain point right they did the trimester rules basically at a certain point the state does have have a right to protect
1: decision have the 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 trimesters uh, i mean i know there have been subsequent decisions so the problem is yeah was it right there at the beginning with about the trimesters
0: yeah so the the trimester rule is in place and i want to say it was justice blackburn was that the justice who
1: that sounds right about a seven to two decision yeah
0: yeah it was a seven two decision and that kind of kicked off a 50-year battle but 92 i think they that that planned, was Casey. Yeah, Planned Parenthood versus Casey made it so that it was viability of yeah. of the child. That makes it... So I think Blackburn was still there at the time and said the problem with that is now it muddies the waters.
1: If I may jump in and mm-hmm. offer once again something, if, if, unless you want to keep going with abortion. No, go, no, go but, ahead. Yeah, I, I offered to, to say that the liberal America has... Um, This problem has been systemic. You look at the American body politics, you have a Republican Party, which I've been talking about in very negative terms, but I think I can make them stick. And we have a a press that also hasn't told the American people what they need to know as we've gone along. And we've got an American people that have proved vulnerable to becoming... Something pretty ugly that so that they there are a lot of Americans who are willing to look at what Donald Trump was and not not in a hidden way. I mean, Nixon you thought was pious maybe, but Trump is right out there with what he is. And they there's something wrong with uh, already in 2015 that they chose him to be their nominee and. The, the liberal world, the democratic world, that I say the rise of this force of brokenness could not have happened had there not been some major defects in liberal America. And and that's what I wanted to offer you again, to go through what the what I was yeah. offering.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd like to talk about that, because we did talk a lot about what ails the Republican Party, but there's the counterpoint to that. So I, I would it like to get into once that. Upon a place. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed part one, The Conservative Forces of Brokenness with Dr. Andy Bard Schmuckler, then please check out episode two, which will deal with the three defects that afflict liberal America. I hope to see you there. Thank you.